right. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term miscarriage of justice. Are you all familiar with that term, miscarriage of justice? If you don't know what that means, it, it's just basically a term that, or a phrase that has been come into use to describe the, the lack of justice in the world. That there's situations sometimes that are so complicated and, and knots that are so hard to untie that injustice ends up happening. Or sometimes people maliciously seek to have injustice happen where lies are told or people are misrepresented. Uh, and justice is not ultimately served. And uh, I grew up fairly sheltered life. I think it took me a long time to realize this was actually a thing, that it was actually a reality in life. I didn't see it a lot in real time. Uh, And I don't know when you first started to be attuned to the reality of injustices in the world and how there can be miscarriages of justice. I think for me, as best as I can remember, it was maybe even when I was in early high school and started reading the fictional work To Kill a Mockingbird. If you've ever read that book, there's a character in it named Tom Robinson who's wrongly accused of things and uh, and lies are told about him. And it, it just opened my mind as someone who had just thought everything is fair, everything works out fine, to realize, no, it doesn't in the world, that there's a lot of times where lies are told, where injustice is reached. Uh, but it's not just in the fictional world. We, we've, many of us, probably even in recent days maybe, have had things happen, whether small or large in our life, where we see injustices happen to other people or even to ourselves. Uh, they, these things happen in real life, not just the fictional world. And they have always happened. Uh, these miscarriages of justice are not just like a new phenomenon in the last century or few centuries. They have happened since the beginning of time. There's been this at least possibility of injustice happening. People get wrongly accused of things, they get wrongly convicted of things, they get wrongly demonized, mischaracterized for various things. Uh, Sometimes people who make honest mistakes are treated as like scheming, conniving people. There's all sorts of injustices that happen in our world. And in today's text, in Deuteronomy 19, we're going to see Moses giving some instructions about how to, as best as the people of Israel could, and us as onlookers, people who listen now, as best as we can, how we can try to try to ensure that justice does take place, that there's not these miscarriages of justice, if there's ways that we can try to prevent those things, uh, that, that we would strive to do it. Because the pursuit of justice and just judgments, it's complicated. It's messy sometimes when there's differing testimony, when there's differing accounts. But God's people, as we're going to see in Deuteronomy 19, God's people, including us today, we have a responsibility, I would say, to try to do the hard work of establishing justice and keeping justice. Uh, That's part of our responsibility as the people of God. And so I'm going to read this text here in just a moment, the whole chapter, Deuteronomy 19. If you don't know Deuteronomy at all, maybe you're joining us for the first time this Sunday. Uh, What the book of Deuteronomy is, it's an Old Testament book, so way before Jesus came. Uh, But what it is, it's, it's basically like a written record of a speech or a couple speeches that Moses gave he was 120. He was about to die. Uh, he had led the people of Israel for 40 years as they had wandered around the wilderness. They're finally about to go into the promised land, and he's giving them this long kind of, of last speech, the, these final words to them before he goes to be with the Lord and before they go into the promised land. And it's, a lot of this written record uh, is 
uh, covering of the law. It's rehashing of the law that God had given to Moses 40 years ago uh, back at Mount Sinai and him trying to take that law and say, as you guys go in the land, this is how you're, you need to live it out. These are things to be aware of. These are things you need to try to do or look out for. And a lot of it is like fleshing out even of the Ten Commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments. Uh, him trying to say, these are the ways you will live those out in the land. And what you're going to see as I read this here in a second is that he's really in this chapter, as we call them, is going to address, I would say, and kind of unpack the Sixth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment. They're, they're the ones about not killing murdering uh, and not bearing false witness those are the two things you're going to see him kind of flesh out in real time real scenarios uh, how God's people need to work for justice and obeying even those two commands so I'm going to read this text for us and we'll walk back through it in two main chunks um, but I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 19 and I encourage you to follow along in your copy the scriptures. So Moses continues his address to the, the people of Israel, uh, and God continues his address to us uh, here in Deuteronomy 19, verse 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood uh, in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart three cities, and if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers, and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided that you're careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then he shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear 
and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this text in just one sentence that I, I think fleshes out the two main points uh, that Moses was trying to communicate in this section. And we'll walk back through and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by those. Uh, but in thinking of the practice of justice, I think Moses is trying to communicate these two things to the nation of Israel and God to us. Is that justice won't allow fatal accidents to escalate or false accusations to stand. So justice won't allow fatal accidents to escalate or false accusations to stand. So we're going to walk back through those two statements. I want to show you what I mean by that, what I think Moses meant by that, and try to apply these into our day. Because uh, I think there's relevance that may even surprise us. Or we might not see it first that, that comes from this text to us who live in 2022. So in, in this first section, verses 1 through 13, I, I'm just going to call this accidents or fatal accidents to stick with the alliteration, uh, fatal accidents. What is happening in this text, verses 1 through 13, is Moses describing the value of human life and how to respond when it's taken. Uh, I just want to note, I mean, to any parents or grandparents in the room, I'm going to try to be as sensitive as I can uh, to discussing these things. They're, these are, are things that are about the taking of life. And so I'm going to try to not be unnecessarily uh, crude or anything like that. But there, there's weighty things that are addressed here. Uh, and I want to make sure that we understand them. So the, the backstory to this and these commands about these cities, like these cities of refuge, the backstory to it is the value of human life. That there is great value to the life of every single human being. You see that from the very beginning of the Bible. It doesn't start here. That This is just the, the continuation of what God has already said about the value of human life and the seriousness of the punishment that often comes when it's taken from people. Uh, it, I just want to reference two texts just briefly to, to let you know this wasn't Moses making this up. This isn't me making this up. Uh, the severity of these consequences uh, for taking human life. But if you go to Genesis chapter 4 verse 10. Uh, this is right on the heels of these very, these, the very first human death where Cain killed his brother Abel. Uh, God comes to Cain who had just slayed his brother and this is the words of God to Cain. He, it says, the Lord said, what have you done? And then here comes this language of blood crying out. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so he even sends Cain further away, puts a mark on him. But there's consequence that comes for Cain taking the life of his brother. And it grieves the heart of God. It's this weighty, weighty thing in the mind and heart of God. And you jump forward to Genesis 9, just one other text I'll mention. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, this is right after the flood of Noah's day. And God is establishing this covenant with Noah. It's almost like a reset of the human race, uh, like with Noah, like a new Adam of sorts. And one of the things amongst several that, that God says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, if you look at verses 5 through 6, talking about humanity in general, God says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Uh, so God is saying when the life of a human being is taken, that he's saying I, there will be a reckoning with me for that. Like I'm the one who created them. Whether it's an animal that kills them or a fellow human being that kills them, God is saying there will be a reckoning with me as the creator. This is a, a serious, the, 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 perhaps the most serious thing we can do as, as an offense. And so I, I want to not, I'm not trying to make a case for capital punishment. This is not the point of this sermon. But I, I want you to see that capital punishment, the taking of life for the taking of life, was not the invention of some just crazy people from of old. Like th- these were expressions from God himself of the severity of taking human life and the, the consequence that can and does come for it at times. It's a, a broader question about whether capital punishment should still be a thing today. We could have that conversation another time. But I, I want you to see the background to what Moses is talking about here and what he's speaking into. And so this concept had developed, and you saw this phrase appear a couple times in verses 1 through 13, that this concept had developed of an avenger of blood. Did you guys see that a couple times in the text as I read it? The avenger of blood. And what, what that was, was there was, and it was in other cultures too, but even amongst the nation of Israel, there was this, this happening that would take place when a life would be taken of one of your loved ones. That there would be this almost like responsibility or a right, if you want to call it that way, to avenge that person's death. To go and to take the life of the one who had taken that person's life. That's who this avenger of blood is. This person who has responsibility almost to take the life of the one who had taken life. And so that's what has, all that to say, that's what's given rise to what Moses is talking about in verses 1 through 13 of these cities of refuge. Because... The taking of life, God had said, is tremendously serious. There's nothing more serious. But in our fallen world, sometimes the taking of life is not on purpose, right? It it can happen accidentally. This still happens today, where life can be taken accidentally. And what, what Moses is addressing here as they go into land is saying, if death occurs accidentally, you treat that person differently than someone who laid in wait and had anger and hate in their heart and purposefully killed them. And so God had set up for the nation of Israel, as they were about to go into land, he had laid out this plan for them as they took over these cities to have three initially and eventually six, if you were counting up there, uh, as the land expanded, to have six cities that would serve as these cities of refuge. That's a, a title taken from the book of Exodus, these cities of refuge, because not every taking of life was murder, right? You see even in verse four, this title the manslayer to me that i was telling my wife yesterday that sounds horrible like manslayer sounds almost like worse than murder just in our terminology but it's actually a different category that's less responsible like manslaughter is something where yes you took a life but it was not murder it wasn't premeditated and so there's this category of people who may have accidentally taken the life of someone who are these manslayer And God has set up for these cities to be places uh, that if something happens, like what he describes in verse 5, he's describing this ancient possibility of an accidental killing where they're out in the woods, they're taking their axes or whatever, and the head flies off of one of them, hits the, the friend nearby, causes him to die. That person was obviously not trying to kill that person. It was it's purely accidental. And in a situation like that, they've created these cities of refuge where that person could flee to. 
because they know if and when this person's uh, family finds out, that avenger of blood is going to be coming after me. And I did not mean to kill him. I'm not deserving of death. And so I can flee to this city of refuge. I can go there and be safe. And this was to prevent, I would say, and why I I worded the, the, the phrase how I did at the beginning, that justice won't allow fatal accidents to escalate. I think this provision of these cities was to prevent the escalation of violence, to prevent the escalation of anger and hatred, and to compound an awful, awful situation with further taking of human life. When it it wasn't deserved, God had set up these cities so they could flee there. Because if you look at verse 6, what was trying to be prevented with these cities was this. It said, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally though the man didn't deserve to die and hadn't hated his neighbor in the past so what Moses knows could easily happen is that you come upon your relative who's just been killed you see the person there then you in hot anger not even knowing what has taken place you lash out and maybe even feel justified in doing that to strike down the person you believe just purposefully struck down your relative and so God has, in his kindness and mercy and the, the brokenness of the world, has set up these cities that these manslayers could free to, where they could have a harbor, they could have a safe place to stay and, and flee from the judgment that would wrongfully be coming against them. But what I would want you to see, one other thing before I try to apply this part, is in verses 11 through 13, there's also this important caveat about these cities to where Moses is trying to tell them these cities that exist, these cities of refuge, they are not to become safe harbors for murderers. Like they are not to become this place where someone who really did try to kill, who really did plot and enact and bring about the death of another person, they're, they're not allowed to just come to this city and just receive mercy uh, because it's a city of refuge. He, he's imagining that they come there to this city having just killed someone. They come to this city, they flee to it, verse 11, but then verse 12 he says that the elders of the city that that person came from they don't reach the, the gates of that city and just say, oh man, he made it in there, we can't do anything. No, they, they are to go into that city to extradite him basically, take him back and to have, judgment, have a trial and then judgment enacted against him. And so these cities were not to become safe havens for murderers. They were not, they were not to become that. So I, I want to take a few moments and apply this part of the text, this part about these accidents and the, the refusal to let them escalate into things that, that are increasingly worse. I, I want to try to apply it to us in today's uh, place, in today's life, because we don't have these. We don't have cities of refuge. We don't have places, that, at least, that do this type of thing. But a couple things I want to say by word of application from this text. One... I think we need, if we don't have it, we need to have a category as the people of God of unintentional sin. We need to have a category of that. That there are times where things are truly done accidentally. Not every, it, it's still sin in a sense. It's still wrongdoing that happens. There's still consequence that takes place. But there is a category of not just murder but of manslaughter. Right? There, there is a category that we ought to have where when we see someone doing something wrong, we see them having brought about something bad, where we don't immediately assume the motives that were behind it. 
where we don't immediately assume the worst of this person, but where we actually have a category that they may have done this unintentionally. That they may have not done this maliciously. They may not have done this purposefully even, uh, even though they have done something wrong. I, I think this has immense relevance just as a parent myself, uh, that when I see my children do things, or when you see people younger than you do things, a lot of times you or I start to assume certain things, that they meant to do that, that they meant to say it that way, that they meant to be harmful in this particular way. And we often assume things about people's motives. We do it in friendships. We do it in our workplaces. We do it in our marriages. We do it all the time where we see something happen in the life of a person. We instantly connect dots. We assume motive. We assume purposefulness in what they're doing. And that's not to say that there's never purposefulness in what they did. There often is. But we need to have a category, a possibility in our minds that this person did this unintentionally. And we address that differently than if they did it knowingly. If they did it eyes wide open, knowing what was about to happen, we address that differently, right? Uh, They address these situations differently. So have a category for unintentional sin. But a second word of application, though, thinking of this avenger of blood and the temptation that would have been in his heart This hot anger that is talked about in verse 6 that could rise up and just lead to this impulsive act. I I would say a simple command, I'm just borrowing this language from James, is that I think we need to be much slower to anger than what we are. We are quick in our society, quick to anger. We are quick to, to lash out and let blood boil and not even try to turn the dial on, but just turn it up. Like we, we see something bad happen, we see somebody mistreated, we see something that is, that is perceived of as wrong, and we just let our anger boil. Like we, we turn it up rather than trying to slow it down. But it is so vital in our lives when we see legitimate wrongdoing, when we see mistreatment of people, when we see bad things happen, it is so vital for us that we actually be deliberate as God's people, that we be slow to anger, That we actually tried, we've talked about this a few Sundays ago, that we actually try to inquire diligently about what happened. That that we don't just fire off and do things that we are going to regret, say things we're going to regret. I doubt anyone in the room, I could be wrong, I doubt anyone in the room though has reached this level where you let your anger boil to the place of striking someone to death. I'm guessing that's not a common temptation for us. But we do, when we see our loved ones mistreated, do we not feel this temptation, this innate thing within us to lash out at the people who've hurt them, uh, to, to strike back at them, to, to be quick to anger rather than slow to anger. James said that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? That's James chapter 1. The, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, but in the heat of moments we think that it will or that it does. We feel justified in doing it, saying that thing, lashing out at that person, We must have a a much greater slowness to anger. Not seeking to inflict vengeance upon people, but seek to be patient, to be gracious, even when everything in us grates against that, pulls us away from that. The, The third word of application, I would say, from this text, again, realizing we don't have these cities of refuge, but a word of application I was thinking of this week is this. And thinking of verses 11 through 13, how the the murderer was not allowed safe harbor in the city of refuge, I would say that we must not ever let the church 
become a safe harbor for people who are manipulative, abusive, harmful to other people. That can be a huge, huge temptation in the church because our hearts are bent to mercy, right? Like towards graciousness. To, to, and just like these cities of refuge, I think would have had this culture of acceptance and hey, we will welcome you in. We will protect you from that person who is pursuing you. In some ways, that instinct should be within us as a church. But you can see how a murderer could have sought to take advantage of that and say, well, these are a merciful people. Like, I bet they'll show mercy. I bet they'll believe me. I'll bet they'll, like, believe the lies that I spend. I can just find safe harbor there even though I've done this evil. I've taken this life of a person. And the same thing can happen in churches. I have seen it happen in churches. This, there's this temptation for people who are manipulative, who are abusive, who are harmful of people, probably not to the level of murdering, but they, they are hateful, they're, they're vile people in how they treat other fellow human beings, and they think, if I can get an end, these are the merciful people of the community, the church. Like, these are the merciful, gracious people. I bet I can get them to believe me. I bet I can, they'll show me acceptance. They'll protect me from the harm that should come to me. They'll protect me from, they won't tell the authorities. They won't tell the people who need to know about these things. And we must resist that temptation hard as a church. We are a place of mercy. We are a place of God's mercy to people. But we do not, and we must not, as a people of God, shield people from the consequences of the law that should come to them. Right? And as a, as a church, I want you to know that we are committed to that and will always be committed to that, that we do not just become a safe harbor for manipulative, unrepentant people. We call people to repentance. We call people to accountability, not in a graceless way, but in a just way. And so we need to be on guard about that as a church, just as these cities had to be on guard that they didn't become a safe harbor for unrepentant sinners, and that we don't become a safe harbor for unrepentant sin either. So the verses 1 through 13, talked a bit about those. Verse 14, I'll acknowledge, I'm just going to talk very, very briefly about it because Moses took about one sentence on it. Um, but uh, what he's talking about in verse 14 was uh, they had these stones probably that would be um, markers or landmarks that would mark off property lines or boundary lines at least of tribes if not of more specific properties of individual people. And there was this temptation that they would face in that ancient world who didn't have like maps they could Google and pull up and documents they could like to take those rocks and move them to try to manipulate the system and they, like uh, confuse people or just intimidate people and say, no, that is my land. Like do you see where the rock is, even though you know and they know you just moved it. Uh, there would be this temptation to do that, to try to manipulate, to be deceptive, to be deceitful uh, towards other people. And so that trajectory is started in verse 14. Moses saying, do not do that. That, in a sense, is a bearing of false witness. It's lying. It's misleading people to move those boundary markers. Do not do that. And Moses, as he's turning that corner talking about false witness, gets into verse 15 and following and dives deeper into the topic of Bearing false witness, the importance of speaking the truth and how to handle the situations when false accusations are made. It's like verse 14 is kind of turning a corner from thou shalt not kill to thou shalt not bear false witness. And he just dives deeper into the thou shalt not bear false witness as he hits verse 15. So I want to explain verses 15 through 21 under this heading of false accusations. That justice doesn't let false accusations stand. 
Okay, Moses starts this section, verse 15, with a basic general principle uh, that there needs to be, he sa- I'll just repeat what he says, he says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what he is talking about is the, the principle, if you want to use a big word, is corroboration, the need to have multiple people. If you're going to convict someone, if you're going to bring consequence to a person for something that they're accused of, you need to strive to have multiple people, trustworthy people who are attesting to what that person did. That you're not just having one person make some accusation kind of flippantly and then just take their word for it and bring harsh judgment upon a person, but that you're wanting to have multiple people. You're wanting them to corroborate each other's testimony. But Moses knows that sometimes there's only going to be one witness, right? In certain circumstances, there's only going to be one witness. And he knows, he's probably seen this happen many times. He knows as he gets into verse 16, that sometimes, especially when there's just one witness, that person is going to be a malicious witness. That's the, that's the adjective that he used, is that there is a malicious witness who arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing. And so Moses knew that sometimes people make false accusations. That that is a reality in our fallen world, that people sometimes make false accusations. And so Moses describes this process. I won't reiterate all of it because we just talked about it back in chapter 17. But he describes this process again, how if that type of situation arises, where there's one person who's saying, this happened, this person did this awful thing, and the other person's saying, no, I did not. That they're to go and before this court. They're to go to the, and even to go before the Lord, he says in verse 17. They're, they're to go, these two parties go before the courts, go before those who are in authorities, uh, in places of authority at the time. And those people are supposed to he- inquire diligently. Moses says again here. They're to inquire diligently about what actually took place. Verse 18. And they're to, to try to find out. And what Moses says is if that accuser is really found to be malicious, they are found to be someone who is misrepresenting what took place and that they are being deceptive about what took place, Moses says not only is that person who is accused to be let off, like to be acquitted, but he says that person who is the accuser is to be punished. Right? That the person who has spoken lies, who's tried to, to bring false witness against this person, he says they are to be punished. Verse 19, he says, do to him as he meant to do to his brother. And so the more serious the accusation had been and the, the, the consequence they were seeking, when they're found to have been lying, that very consequence is supposed to come back upon them. Right? And so it would have hopefully given us sobriety about people bearing false witnesses because they knew that they could have damages come to them as well. And Moses unfolds this principle, if you want to use another big word, if we talked about corroboration. He's also, as he gets further into this paragraph, talking about proportionality. That when they're the more severe an accusation has been and they're found out to be false, the more weightiness there should be to the consequence. That it's one thing to say, yeah, my brother ate a cookie he wasn't supposed to eat, mom and dad. It's another to tell authorities in a city, yeah, I saw him kill so-and-so, right? And that's obvious to us, it's intuitive to us, there's proportionality, that thus an eye for an eye 
a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Like the, the more severity there is to accusation, the greater consequence that can come if it is false. And Moses wanted the people of God to know that there was consequence if they bore false witness. That's what verse 20 is about. That, the, that it was, this principle was supposed to be a deterrent to them. No, man, I, this is not something to mess around with. Like, uh, if I make these false accusations, I could get in big trouble myself. And so Moses doesn't want false accusations to stand. He, he doesn't want these, these lies that are told about people to stand and to influence how people's lives unfold. And I, I want to think for a, a few minutes about what relevance this has for us. Because we are still tempted today to be malicious witnesses. At minimum, even if you're not tempted to be a malicious witness, you hear malicious witnesses more than you probably even realize. Uh, And I want us to think about this as a people of God today. Number one, and this should be the most straightforward and obvious one, is, and I hope that this goes without saying, but do not make false accusations about people. Do not do it. Like, that is a base level thing that we are told in the Ten Commandments is to not bear false witness. And we may feel like we're totally immune from that, that we don't, we're not tempted by that. Maybe that's just something kids deal with or, or young people deal with or just particularly bad people deal with. But there is a temptation, I would say, maybe in reduced form that we face regularly. Maybe where we don't say outright lies where you don't like spin grand stories, but maybe where we slant things, right? Or we twist things a bit, or we take some words people said and we share them out of context, right? Or we include certain details that are more helpful for our case uh, to get people to think such and such about so-and-so, and we withhold things that may present them more favorably. We do this regularly, or we're at least tempted to it regularly, where we, where we think we are bending the truth We're stretching the truth. Truth can't be bent and can't be stretched, right? Truth is truth. And God calls us to be honest, to be forthright, to never misrepresent people. Sometimes we even are tempted to do this when we think so-and-so kind of deserves judgment. So-and-so deserves people to look down upon them. So-and-so deserves to have a bad reputation. And when we think that, sometimes we feel free to bring about the things that we think they deserve by bending stuff, by saying things about them that we may or may not know is true. But God's people should have truth come out of our mouth, right? Only truth come out of our mouth, not half-truths, not partial truths. We should have truth come out of our mouths. And the Lord, even if no one else knows you are lying, even if no one else knows it, the Lord does. Like he sees all. Courts don't see all. Pastors don't see all. Parents don't see all. Bosses don't see all. God does. And like even if we don't stoop to murder, when we use words to falsely accuse people and tear people down, we are destroying that person. Like we are tearing down a person made in the image of God. And murder is, is one thing. Speaking evil of a person is another. But they are both tearing down an image bearer of God. And we must be people who speak truth, who speak words of truth about people and to people. So do not make false accusations about people. But I think the more common thing we deal with, and what I, I want to caution us against is this, is do not spread accusation against people. 
Do not spread accusation, especially accusations that you either know or suspect are either false or that are unsubstantiated. This happens all the time in our world today. Where where we hear accusations made about a person and we don't even know if it's true or not. But we pass it along. Right? We, We share it. Uh, we, we pass along that, that accusation, that suspicion to another person. And I, I think this happens very regularly that we can quickly, even if we're not the initial false accuser, we can quickly become accomplices, right? Where maybe somebody said something with malicious intent and when we add, like, take like a megaphone and blast it out to the world, we are becoming an accomplice to their false witness, Right? That, that we are spreading something that we don't even know to be true. It's like in today's world, we all have megaphones and we are way too quick to use them, in my opinion. Like where we will take rumors, we will take speculation, we will take accusation, we will just broadcast it to everyone. And we can unwittingly, unintentionally even be spreading harm, spreading false accusations about people. And I, I think it's motivated often Assuming the best, it's motivated by a good intent that we feel a responsibility to inform the public. We feel a responsibility to share with the world such and such. But often in our felt responsibility to the world or to our community, we forget our responsibility to that person. Right? That we have a responsibility to protect the the reputations as best as we can of every human being and let justice be served through proper channels. And it is nearly impossible, you've probably seen this happen in people's lives, that, but it is nearly impossible to undo the damage to a person's reputation once it's been done. Like it's like toothpaste, like, like when you squeeze that toothpaste out of the tube. And you, have you ever done that or had a kid do that and you try to put it back in the tube? It's not going back in the tube, right? Like once it's out there, it is, go- it is out there. And like we... Thinking of newspapers, I was just thinking of this back in the day. Back in the day, newspapers that may that may offend some of you. I like I like newspapers, but newspapers would have headlines, right? A lot of times, salacious things, headlines, and usually they would try to get it right, but sometimes they would get it wrong. And there's this little part called retractions that happen in newspapers. Guess what? No one reads retractions. They don't. And if they didn't read them in newspapers, I guarantee you they don't read them on Twitter. And they don't read them on Facebook. Like, but they read headlines. They, they read things and we are quick to say them and put them out big for people to see sometimes these salacious things about people. And sometimes we don't even care to find out if it's true. We don't care to verify anything. And we, we blast the headlines and we don't read retractions. And we need to be much slower to spread accusations about people. But a, a third application point, and then I, I want to talk about Christ. Uh, I always want to talk about him. But I, I want to think, uh, maybe this is relevant for some of you even now. I don't know. But I want to think application-wise of what we do, not just as potential accusers, but as people who may be wrongly accused ourselves. Because this happens, where, where people misrepresent us, where they say things about me or my family or whoever, the group that I'm part of, like where we feel misrepresented. 
or we are falsely accused by other people. And I want to say this, that as Christians, we have been taught by Christ, this is, is my putting my words on it, that we don't have to fight fire with fire. That we don't have to, uh, when people make accusations against us, we don't have to fire back with every defense possible and just go back right after these people. We don't have to just assert our rights all the time and demand that we be heard. We, as the people of God, have a capacity that the world does not have to show grace and mercy to people, even to our false accusers. That is something that Jesus taught and something that Jesus modeled, right? Jesus quoted this last verse from today's text when he was giving his Sermon on the Mount, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He, he quoted that. And if we have more time, I would read the whole thing to you. But he, that was the part of his Sermon on the Mount where he was saying the famous line to, if you're struck on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Or if you're forced or asked to walk one mile, walk two like these unjust things that would have happened to people. Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and would want to teach us today that, that we, don't have to, uh, we don't have to abandon the law, right? But we do have capacity as his disciples to show mercy, not just exert justice, right? That, that we don't have to just, if somebody strikes me on one cheek, go and turn them into the authorities, Right? There, there's an ability that we can have to show mercy and restraint even to people who harm us. It's like Jesus was giving uh, in, in those commands in the Sermon on the Mount. It's like Jesus was saying what the law gave you is like a ceiling of response. It's the max that you can do. But you don't have to do that. Like the, there's, a, there's a floor down here where you can actually show restraint and you can, with, you can withhold anger and response back to people and exerting of rights. That the, what the law prescribed was a max response. You can do less. Like you can show mercy to people. You have capacity. Uh, this text, Deuteronomy, a couple times said, have no pity on that person. I think Jesus was starting to, to teach, you actually can have pity on you can show pity and have compassion and mercy upon even who had none toward you, right? And the reason Jesus could teach his disciples to do this and that he could teach us to do this is not just because it's some nice ideal that we can show mercy, that we can show restraint and how we respond to wrongdoing and false accusation, but it's because that's how he lived himself, right? Jesus... These were not just empty platitudes to him when he would teach people to turn the other cheek, right? When he, when he would tell people to allow themselves at times to be mistreated because Jesus endured much more than a smack on the cheek, right? Like, Jesus had people plot against him, scheme against him for months and years, spin lies about him again and again in the public square and to his friends. One of his friends sold him for 30 pieces of silver. They, they plotted and they waited and they schemed and they arrest him falsely. They come up with this joke of a trial for him in the middle of the night and bring in these obviously false witnesses to accuse him of certain things and saying and doing of certain things and they strike him and they put a crown of thorns on his head they strip him mostly naked nail him to a cross like ridiculing him trying to shame him and embarrass him 
Even in the very court system that was supposed to be doing the things taught in Deuteronomy 19, it was corrupt. And none of this happened. False accusations just flew and were believed. And an innocent man who did not deserve to die was put to death shamefully, publicly. But Jesus did not strike back. Right? Jesus did not retaliate. Jesus did not seek to even prevent it from happening. He, he did not. He walked into it willfully. He walked into it with restraint. He didn't seek vengeance upon those who were inflicting these awful things upon him. And this could be so confusing, I think, to people when they read a text like Deuteronomy 19 and hear God's desire for justice and the, the not letting false accusations stand and not letting things escalate and letting innocent people die. God said this. Then at the center point of history, it's like, where did all that go? Like your, your son, you're letting all these false accusations stand against him. You're letting him be put to death. He, was, he, was, he wasn't a manslayer. He didn't even accidentally sin against you. Like you're letting him be put to death like a criminal, like the executed publicly? What in the world? It could feel so confusing to think these principles of justice that Moses has taught about on behalf of God and then to see how it fleshed out at the cross and what led up to the cross. And we could see if, that, if all we saw in the cross and the, the arrest of Jesus and the trial of Jesus, if all we saw was what was happening on a purely human perspective, it would be the injustice of injustice. The, the, the one innocent person put to death. But underneath that human injustice was a whole, much deeper, bigger layer of divine justice. And that's why God had it happen the way that he did was because God couldn't just discard justice. God couldn't just write it off and erase it and pretend it wasn't real. He, he knew that sin must be punished. Our sin must be punished. But that he had this heart to show mercy to us, this determination to show grace to us, to show forgiveness to us. And the one way that that could happen is if there was someone who died in our place. An innocent person who would die not just at the hands of fellow human beings, but who would die at the hands of God the Father who could be justly punished in our place. And that is what happened at the cross. Jesus took upon himself our sins. And if I could say this, although it may sound funny to people, he was justly punished by God the Father because our sins had been counted to him. There was human injustice, but there was divine justice happening. And we are the blessed recipients of that. Because the reason that he suffered, the reason he closed his mouth when he was being accused was so that he could go to the cross and suffer something way worse than those false accusations. That he could suffer the wrath of God for my sin and for yours. And that is what happened. He, he bore that upon the cross. He was justly punished. It, this principle of life for life was fully on display at the cross. This, the, the, the ugliness of our sin against God, the, the severity of it, the weightiness of it, and the consequence it deserved, the proportionality it warranted was shown at the cross because the Son of God had to die for us. 
so he died there at the cross that his enemies might be forgiven. His enemies like us might be reconciled to God. In Hebrews chapter 6, Jesus is talked about as our refuge. We, we find refuge in him. Uh, that w he is the one we find refuge in. I think you can make a good case that these cities of refuge, even in the mind and heart of God, were kind of like a, a precursor, a, a faint image of what Jesus would become for us. That, that they were a place that we, he has become a place, a person that we can flee to. But I want to make sure we don't misunderstand this and that I don't want you to hear the, me saying things that I'm not. We tend, in keeping with Deuteronomy 19, we tend to think of ourselves as the manslayer, right? We tend to think of ourselves as the accidental sinners, as the people who just, oh, like, man, I've made some mistakes in my life. I, I've kind of fallen short of, of, of what God wants me to do. I really wish I wouldn't have done that, but, you know, I'm human, like, to err is human. And we downplay, we act in our relationship with God like we're the manslayer, not the murderer, we are not the manslayers. Like, we are the murderers. Like, we are people. I, I want to share this quote from, it's been a while since I shared a good Charles Spurgeon quote with you all. So I, I want to share one uh, here in closing. I think it will be up on the screen if you can read it. I love this. Talking about Jesus, he says, He is not a refuge provided for men who are innocent, but for men who are guilty. Not for those who accidentally transgress, but for those who have willfully gone astray. Our Savior has come into the world to save not those who have by mistake and error committed sin, but those who have fearfully transgressed against well-known divine commandments and who have followed the sinful dictates of their own free will, their own perversity leading them to rebel against God. We are not the innocent manslayers who just flee to Christ and he welcomes us in because we are innocent, right? We are the murderers. We are the enemies of God who rebelled against him who need somewhere to run, right? Because we know we're guilty. We know, in this following Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, if we want to think of ourselves as having murdered Christ as a collective human race, guess who's the avenger of blood? God the Father would be, right? Like he's the one who should be on our heels and the consequences of the law should be driving us to find, I gotta find somewhere to run. I gotta find some safe place. And when we run to this city of refuge, when we run to Jesus, guess who's there as a gatekeeper? That avenger of blood who we've wronged. And we ought to be terrified of that. Like, where do I go? Where do I go? Where do I run? But praise God, because of Christ, the one who's the avenger of blood is also the extender of mercy and grace to us. And when we run to that city as murderers, as guilty men and women, he doesn't kick us out and send, extradite us back to where we belong to hell, but he welcomes us into heaven, Right? That is the God that we serve, that, that should and has every right to be the avenger of blood, but has laid that vengeance and that justice upon Christ so that he might receive us who spurned him, right? And we ought to have great joy that if we're trusting in Christ now, if we've turned from our sin and placed our trust in him who was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead, 
we ought to have hope and confidence that right now we can be citizens of that city of refuge, that heavenly city, and that we will be in that city forever. That, that we will never be asked to leave. Uh, we will never be kicked out. We are safe in the city of God, not because we're innocent, but because Christ is righteous, right? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing one more song.